Welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I am Aviv Rubenstein, also your host. The 1996 comedy film, That Thing You Do, gave us so much. A charming story about the 1960s post-Beatles one-hit wonder band from Erie, Pennsylvania called The Wonders or The Oneters. Uh, that's Onetters. <laughs> A perfect titular song written by the late Fountains of Wayne singer Adam Schlesinger and a directorial debut by the one and only Tom Hanks, who also wrote the screenplay. Not only did the movie's titular song find real success on the Billboard charts, That Thing You Do is a really touching story about achieving success in an unlikely place, losing it, and finding happiness in a place you never thought you would. A theme that echoes in the career of Adam Schlesinger, who arguably found more tangible success in composing for film and TV than in his band Fountains of Wayne, who are still best known for their 2003 single, Stacy's Mom. Why did that thing you do resonate so much with viewers when it came out in 96? And what did its success do for Schlesinger's career and overall legacy? Plus, a deep dive on the unsung songwriter of this film, Oscar winner Tom Hanks. Stay tuned for a wonderful episode of NSYNC. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. get a little deeper into the production legacy and potential unsolved mystery of the movie a little later in the show but first i want to give you a brief rundown of that thing you do for listeners who either have never seen it or haven't seen it in the better part of 30 years and you would be excused for not having seen it in about 30 years because i feel like this movie is if you know you know no you're, you're, you're shaking no your excuse. finger at me. There's no excuse. Actually, I no, no, it's interesting because I remember this movie being a really big deal when it came out, except that apparently it, it wasn't, wasn't. Yeah, a big yeah. deal. <laughs> apparently it like didn't do as well in, no. in the box office, which we'll talk about later. But I feel like people are only now just rediscovering it because it's on streaming. Yeah. The theme of this week's episode is there are many different versions of success. Journey with me now. Mm-hmm. Eerie PA. 1964. Guy Patterson, played by Tom Everett Scott, works at his father's appliance store. He's a jazz fanatic, and he plays the drums in the store's basement after hours, much to the chagrin of his father, played by the great Holmes Osborne. When local band Jimmy and the Herdsman loses their drummer, played by Giovanni Rabisi, their guitarist, Steve Zahn, enlists Patterson to play drums for them for just one song at the local talent show. The band is rounded out by Jonathan Shake, who plays the titular Jimmy, and Ethan Embry, who plays the unnamed bass player bound for the Marines at the end of the summer. At the talent show, Patterson plays the band's song, a ballad called That Thing You Do, just too fast and winds up blowing everybody's mind. Suddenly, the newly named Wonders, spelled O-N-E, 
find themselves playing pizza restaurants by the airport, cutting a record with Patterson's uncle, played by Chris Isaacs, traveling to Pittsburgh, and being repped first by the great character actor Chris Ellis, and then the man himself, Tom Hanks, doing his best Brian Epstein impression. Mm -hmm. With Jimmy's girlfriend, Faye, played by the absolutely electric Liv Tyler, they go on a tour of state fairs, gaining popularity before getting their chance to perform on national TV on this universe's version of the Ed Sullivan show. But egos, naivete, heartbreak, and a trip to Disneyland threaten to derail the success of their one-hit song. So, Rachel, this is the moment I've been waiting for. Okay. What is your history with this movie? First, I want to say that when I first saw this movie as a kid, Mm -hmm. I did not realize how little time it took place over. I agree with that. It's like just a couple of months, right? It's about a band who becomes incredibly famous based on one hit song in this really condensed period of time. It's like their song goes viral in whatever version of 60s viral that is. And I first saw That Thing You Do at my 10th birthday party. Fuck yeah. In late 1996. And I uh, gathered up my friends and that's the movie we saw in the theater. And it was pure fun for the whole family. It's an indelible memory. And it's one of those movies that I have watched a handful of times just as like a good feel good feature. Just when I need a little pick me up. It's a timeless classic, in my opinion. It lifts your mood up, makes you feel better, makes you feel good just for a minute. But it's also got a depth that I think Tom Hanks really knew how to like create that balance between a feel-good family movie, but there's also like the jokes hold up, the set pieces oh, are great, like the costuming is great. The song itself, that thing you do, it never gets old. And I I wanted to say real quick that usually our podcast formula is um, like a one song, one scene kind of format. Right. One needle drop. One needle drop. But in this case, that thing you do does play eight times over the course of the film. And it's impossible to pick a one song, one scene. And I I did want to ask you... Aviv, in addition to your memories of the movie, what is your favorite That Thing You Do moment? Listeners, Rachel and I have like a shared Google Doc, and and she wrote this question, and what is your favorite That Thing You Do scene? And my answer was, you know what the fuck my favorite scene is. It's the best scene in the whole (laughs) fucking movie. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Can I guess? Yes, you can. You're going to be right. Is it? Okay. Is it the the radio scene where they hear it on the radio, and then they're just like... Dancing, yeah, that's mine too. That's what I was going to say too. They're dancing in a circle around Guy Patterson's father's appliance shop, shop and they're just losing their minds because their song is on the radio. There are so many things that we can say about this scene and this scene has been written about a bunch, but to set the scene in the mind's eye of the viewer, it starts with Liv Tyler like mailing some letters and she hears that thing you do on the radio for the first time and then you kind of go around eerie as all four of the wonders hear it on the radio for the first time and they all wind up at the record store so yes this is pure cinema this is like one of the best scenes in any movie ever and it just so happens before we decided to do this for in sync i just re-watched it because i wanted to and that scene still you know 
however many years later, brings a tear to my eye. It's a real burst of dopamine just to witness that scene. <laughs> and, and this is something that I actually lived in my own life in a very kind of jaded mid 2000s kind of way. I was I was in Boston and I was playing in a, in a band and driving home from work and flipped on the radio, some college radio station and heard my own song. And what? yeah, and I but I didn't run out of the car like Jimmy did and run into my drummer's parents appliance store. I just kind of texted everybody and said, we're on the radio, <laughs> which I also think like there is a nostalgic look back and every single article ever written about this says how nostalgic it was for the sixties and how but before it lifted the veil of Kennedy and all this stuff and mm. the civil rights movement and the Vietnam war. Yeah. I, I don't think that the movie is naive though. I think that it, understands where we were and the naivete of the main characters is they get like a big wake-up call by the end of the movie of like that's not how the world works yeah it's partially just about leaving your hometown and seeing how things work outside of the place you grew up in and do you want to stay in la and la is a drop-in for any town that's not your own just happens to be like one of the biggest toughest cities i remember being so disappointed at the final performance when i was like a child because the bass player was gone and there was all this turmoil in the band and i wanted them to be happy and it didn't feel authentic it didn't feel real to me because i wanted these friends to be friends forever and now when i look back on it it's like oh no this is what the music industry does right yeah it's like a cautionary tale about the music industry Partially because at the end of the film, spoiler alert, the wonders are ultimately a one hit wonder and all the different members of the band go off in their own direction. Some stay in music, some don't. Um, I want to talk about a, a little, a little plot hole that has always driven me crazy. No plot Actually, holes whatsoever. Zero plot holes. Well, in the epilogue of the film, you know how mm-hmm. it says a Jimmy who, so I saw written somewhere that Jimmy is the lead singer is ultimately the the villain like there, there are there are no, no villains. villains hanks has said there's no bad guys in this there's movie. no bad guy but like if there is a bad guy then it is probably jimmy. jimmy and there are a lot of warnings from the jump yes because he's the one who's hesitant to sign their contract he's a bit of a narcissist yeah he's i mean he's a classic front man no offense to any front fans listening <laughs> i know i want to be are... a guy but i know i'm a jimmy <laughs> Well, it helps to have a level of self-awareness, which I promise you have, (laughs) but Jimmy doesn't really. So the Wonders, they're in breach of contract with their record label. And then in the epilogue, it says that that Jimmy and the Herdsman, so he goes on to write- Not a plot hole. I love it. No, no, no. He, but he ends up writing a bunch of songs for for Playtone. For Playtone, yes. and it's like, would the band, yes. would the label that 100%. you breached the contract with, actually put your music out? No, it wouldn't. Like you've burned that. No, break. no. That I, relationship has ended. We're gonna fight. <laughs> I totally disagree. I so so this to me is one of the more brilliant little touches, and the liner notes of the album soundtrack go into a little bit more detail about like Jimmy's later career. But to me. I I have this faith in the movie and I've kind of filled the gap with my imagination being like, oh, he had to come back on his hands and knees because he is such an asshole. No one wanted to work with him. And the only person's phone number he had was Mr. White's. 
And so I don't think I think it's like a brilliant little little moment. Does it actually say that in the liner notes that that he had to? No, not that he come crawling back. No, this is or you're just assuming. I, this he is did. what I'm assuming. <laughs> but the liner notes, we'll, we'll read what they say a little later on in the episode. But okay. the one thing I'll say before we start talking about the music itself is listeners of our show will remember our Empire Records episode and how formative it was for Rachel as a young music journalist. And this is a common tale among many music journalists, including a uh, friend of the show and the reason we know each other, Hillary Hughes. Shout out. Hillary Shout Hughes. out to Hillary who who inspired us to shoot for the moon for this episode. But one of the bigger fights that Hillary and I ever got into was which was a more important music movie, Empire Records or this. And what the the divide is the musicians love that thing you do and the the music writers love Empire Records. Mm. The music lovers love Empire Records. And so this movie was as formative to me yeah. as Empire Records was to you. That Makes a disturbing amount of sense. <laughs> still wrong, <laughs> That really makes a lot of sense to me. This movie didn't inspire me to pick up an instrument per se, but I've read that it inspired many. I read, think I read an interview with Tom Everett Scott, who oh, we'll, we'll talk to later, and he he has spoken quotes. he has spoken about how people still come up to him and tell him that his turn as Guy Patterson inspired them to pick up the drums yeah so i i agree with that take (laughs) i think both movies are great informative for different reasons although i think that that thing you do is a better movie movie hands down a movie 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 like a record record record. a record 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 which was a line that was improv yeah (laughs) i read that too yeah (laughs) yeah so shall we talk about the music specifically? I would love to, because this film is nothing without a song that you don't get tired of hearing a dozen times in the film. I love the backstory to how that thing you do, the song, was written. And I think a lot of people by now know that that thing you do, the song, was composed by Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne and Ivy. And he very sadly passed away in 2020 due to complications with COVID. And it was an incredibly sad day, I remember. And it still is very sad to talk about because of how beloved he was by so many people crossed over in the music and TV and film industries. But at the time, Schlesinger was working. He had like a a publishing deal with Polygram and uh, someone... I think, like, asked him, like, hey, I think he had friends on the entertainment side of Polygram, and they saw that there was an ad, basically, like a a submissions invite to... Like an open call, yeah. An open call to write, like, a Beatles-esque, popular-sounding, like, catchy song for a movie. There were something like 300 submissions... For this ask, even Tom Hanks wrote a song, and and we'll get into some of the songs that he did co-write for that thing you do. And uh, Schlesinger, being a a huge Beatles fan, really can't overstate how the Beatles were still in the cultural conversation in the 90s. 
because I remember like in the 90s, it was as if the Beatles were still a new band. That's just how big that their presence was in the conversation. And there were a lot of movies and TV and just a lot of reasons to talk about the Beatles. So Schlesinger, he submits a demo that he co-wrote with his friend Mike Viola who voices the song. Like, he provides the vocals for... He's Jimmy. For, Jimmy's vocal. He's Jimmy. His, yes, correct. In addition to Adam, I'm probably just going to call him Adam from now going forward because it's a little easier to pronounce than Schlesinger. Um, that Thing You Do features original music from, like I said, Hanks and uh, Rick Elias, Scott Rogness, hopefully I'm not butchering that pronunciation, Mike Piccarillo, Gary Goatsman, and Howard Shore, who a few years later would score the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And Adam wrote That Thing You Do. It starts out as a kind of a lovelorn ballad, similar to the Beatles' Please Please Me, an early 1960s song of theirs. And as we mentioned earlier, it becomes a, a faster, just pure pop bop. And something really interesting that I learned while researching this is that I did not realize I think as a kid, how many of the songs featured in the film are pure originals. I thought they were licensed. I mean, I didn't think, oh, these are licensed songs. I just thought they were pulling songs from the era. But that's how good the original songs are. And I think that that also speaks to like who we were as kids, where we're learning about music from the 60s and all of these fake bands uh, we don't understand that they are inauthentic, and the only thing that we have to judge that on is the quality of the sound, the quality of the music. We could do an entire season on just this one movie, because every single song is so expertly written to be a perfect time capsule of the person who's singing it, from Mr. Downtown to uh, Diane Dane to, you know. Yeah, I fully thought Diane Dane was a real person. Same. <laughs> Should we pause and listen to a bit of that thing you do yes i want to read a little bit from a great essay in pitchfork from 2020 about that thing you do written by jill mapes that thing you do borrows so many little details from the Beatles story, you could consider it a love letter to the Beatles without actually being about the Beatles. But a big part of what makes this Beatles pastiche work is the title song. If the tune wasn't genuinely infectious and convincingly nostalgic, a film about the power of one really good song would have made little sense. This is the ball game, as they say. You see this repeated in Almost Famous a few years later, where you have to believe that Stillwater and Fever Dog are the thing. And there are several movies that do this to like slightly worse effect, including um, Lost, where mm-hmm. Charlie's band has a, a song called You All Everybody that you hear <laughs> probably a dozen times throughout this series. And it's, it's not it, right? Because they're supposed to be... Like they're, the show is trying to convince us that they, Charlie's band like is like, like, like no, like Oasis. They're like an oh, Oasis yeah, band. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and you all, everybody is supposed to be like a stand-in for what, Wonderwall or something? That's right. <laughs> or uh, something off of What's the Story? Or Champagne Supernova. But point is, 
like eventually it becomes comical how silly and not great that song is versus that thing you do where not only do you leave the theater still singing it you like go home and get the soundtrack yeah listen to it on spotify like i do and a little later we'll talk about how well the soundtrack did but first i want to read a few quotes that adam gave to consequence of sound in 2016 they did a good 20-year retrospective interview with Adam Schlesinger, who said, there's a little bit of I want to hold your hand when it comes to a minor chord in that thing you do, which I think is the best chord in the whole song. I tried to do that little bit uh, where the song's in E and then it goes into C sharp minor. Now we're getting really into like the weeds of, of composition. <laughs> I, I love this move, too. This is a good move. I'll take your word for it. And... Adam then talks about submitting the song being a relative unknown. A lot of the time, I think in the industry, you see, and this is just my thoughts, but a lot of the time in the industry, like for a big movie written and directed by a major movie star like Tom Hanks, you're going to, I think most of the time, get like a friend of Tom's or a friend of the director to like, so, like someone who's already known. You mentioned Howard Shore did music for the film. Howard Shore also composed the score for Apollo 13, right? Tom Hanks brought in people from the Tom Hanks network mm-hmm. to work on this movie. And yet he is discovering a unknown songwriter and an unknown song for this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there, there's actually some storyline mirroring and Adam's story versus the Wonders because the Wonders are this unknown little band from, from Erie. Eerie PA. Adam said about submitting the song, it was just a shot in the dark. It wasn't like I was hired to do it. I think they just put the word out about it. I definitely thought it was something in my wheelhouse. And the fact that it was a Tom Hanks project made it feel like it was worth a couple days of effort. It was definitely worth taking a swing at. I played around with some ideas for a couple days. As I recall, I had three variations of the same song. They were all slightly different. I played them all for a few of my friends, and they all pointed at the same one. So I went and did a demo with Mike Viola and Andy Chase, two friends of mine, and that's what we sent in. I remember spending two or three days on it, which is usually what it takes to get something together for me. The first day is just about getting the initial inspiration going, and then it's a couple of days of tweaking and polishing it. And then... That thing you do is picked, quote, out of a pile. So Tom Hanks and his partner, Gary Goatsman, had the, quote, confidence to pull a song out of a pile and say, yeah, we like this one. Kind of like what I was saying earlier, Adam says, so much of what gets done in the music business comes down to, well, let's get this guy who did this one thing. People often don't trust their own ears. There's so much money riding on these things, it's easier to go, let's get the guy who wrote these five things because he's hot right now. But these guys based an entire movie around a song written by some kid they had never heard of. We actually didn't even know how to submit it, so Mike and I made up a band name and put it on a cassette and we, we just sent it in. We said it was by a band called Scientist Alexis. It doesn't exist. It was just me, Andy, and Mike. Tom Hanks pulled it out and said, let's use this one. That's a miraculous thing. So let me ask a question. Yes. If Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks and he has the backing of Warner Brothers to make this movie, why doesn't he just use a bunch of songs that already exist? Why doesn't he just Mm. pull from a stack that he knows has a built-in audience already? So in a couple of points 
in this show, we cite from a really great oral history on The Ringer, uh, that thing you do. And in that interview, Tom, I think, talks about how it's a, it's a real money saver to write original songs. So they could spend their entire budget on pulling actual songs from the 60s, or they could write original songs and use that money elsewhere. Yeah, and we talked with Jordan Ross Schindler about Cruel Intentions and then spending a million dollars to get one song, Bittersweet Symphony. And there are so many cues in this movie that need to be needs to be layered upon layered upon layered with songs. So you can imagine the entire movie's budget just going to song licensing if they're if they're pulling things that already exist. Particularly Beatles songs, I think at the time were especially difficult to license and first because if you'll recall for a long time when streaming became a thing the beatles catalog was not on streaming i forgot about that Mm -hmm. that was a big deal whole thing yeah now it now it is but at the time not uh and i can only imagine how much money it would have cost to get even one beatles song but anyhow i thought it was also funny to learn that uh viola i'm not sure if he pronounces it viola or viola but Mike had to be convinced to be the voice of the Wonders, basically. He he talks about it in that Ringer interview. And he, I think it was when some of his, like, musician friends convinced him to do it. Like, no, this would be cool. He said, when I went back to New York, I was talking to people I knew, like the guys in Squeeze, the guys in They Might Be Giants. My personal favorite, Marshall Crenshaw. They'd all written versions of that thing you do. Mike had no idea how many people had submitted music for this open call. Big names. Yeah. And I think Mike was struggling with like, in a way, he he mirrors Jimmy's character, but like not in a negative narcissistic way. He's just got this like binary of like make art or sell out. That's kind of what I'm taking away from how a younger Mike Viola had to be convinced to be involved with this and to voice the character in a major motion picture. Also, it didn't seem like this movie was going to be super edgy. It's like a family-friendly PG movie, and he is, you know, he's a singer in a rock band, so he doesn't necessarily want to be associated with that. Little did he know, right, that it would be such a cultural touchstone. Absolutely, yeah. I think... That's a major difference in culture and, and society in the way that like in terms of how we view art now, because 30 years ago, if you were an artist and you were accused of selling out, I mean, Ugh. that was going to stick in your craw. Death. <laughs> and, sentence. And today, well, that's a whole other podcast show. But <laughs> if you're in a band and you get like a great song placement or your song, an advertising agency wants to use your song, well, Great, because like, how else are you going to make money? Another thing I wanted to touch on, too, was just the the song that plays in the film's opening credits, Loving You Lots and Lots. Incredible. Incredible song. So this this yeah. is the one. So Diane Dane, I was like, OK, I get it because she's in the movie. I, I get that that's probably not a real just based on a real person, but not a real person. This one blew my fucking mind. Yes. So. This song was written by Hanks, and it was a send-up to Ray Conniff, Mitch Miller, and other practitioners of the, quote, beautiful music or proto-Muzak formats that were a staple of adult radio in the early 60s. Holy shit. I can't think of another movie right now where Tom Hanks's music upbringing and his love 
of music is as on display as it is here. No, this is quite the reaction to like Forrest Gump, which did license all these songs from the 60s mm. and is this kind of baby boomer porn of like <laughs> they're in Vietnam and you hear Fortunate Son and and Jenny's going to jump off the building and you hear Freebird and like all this stuff. And I think that that Tom Hanks is this has this encyclopedic knowledge of of 60s music and is just like oh i could do that like if if i had the musicians and the budget like we could we could fake everybody out i mean i think i was arguably faked out for about 20 years i was faked out (laughs) until about 15 minutes ago (laughs) it was great and like he has a whole team around him to help him put these songs together like producer and songwriter Michael Piccarillo, who I mentioned uh, earlier in, in the show, he has produced work with artists like Latoya Jackson, Natalie Cole, Smokey Robinson, Tiffany. He joined Hanks and Gary Goatsman on writing like Mr. Downtown by the fictional Freddie Fred- Fredrickson, Hold My Hand, Hold I, My Heart by the Chanterelles. I love Mr. Downtown. I love Hold My Hand, Hold My Heart. And I love this. I love this scene where Ethan Embry's character is like miming the little clapping yes! they do. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it looks like Piccarillo uh, single-handedly wrote The World is Over by the fictional Diane Dane, who I fully thought was a real person. I'm going to just <laughs> get the soundtrack this is going to sound like an ad at this point because it's gonna, it's about to get much, much worse for <laughs> our gushing over this movie. But like, I've just decided to buy the soundtrack because it's, it's so good. That's great. I, I love that. Um, I have moments like that a lot when I get so into a new <laughs> band that I just impulse buy their t-shirt on Bandcamp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But as we mentioned, this comes from Tom Hanks's deep, deep love for music, especially the music of the 60s. And The Ringer did an incredible oral history on the making of That Thing You Do, which Rachel mentioned before. And I'm very tempted to read the entirety of it to you. But here are some, some of the Sparks yeah. Notes version. <laughs> if you want the deepest possible dive. Holy this shit. Movie, they got everyone. Everyone. So Tom Hanks was seven when the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, which is kind of the shot heard around the world for a certain generation of people. And this is from The Ringer article. Quote, later that year, as the Beatles embarked on a trip to Australia, Ringo Starr came down with tonsillitis. And instead of canceling the tour, manager Brian Epstein tapped English drummer Jimmy Nickel as a replacement for just eight shows. And for three decades, Hanks could not get this story out of his head. This is Hanks's quote. That definitely stuck in my craw because I thought, what was that guy's life like for a while? And thus... Yeah, I felt bad for... uh Giovanni Ribisi's character. Chad fell down. Chad, Chad fell down. <laughs> I, but okay, we can talk a little bit about Giovanni Ribisi's character because he becomes the son that the Pattersons always wanted. Oh my he's, God. <laughs> he's eating dinner with them and watching the show at the end. Yeah, he he's is. And, and isn't he helping in the store too? He's helping yeah. in, in the appliance store. And, and the dad could never get um, Tom Everett Scott to to, to take his job sign. seriously. Yeah, yeah, turn off the sign. Yeah, I, th- I think that the, there is a little bit of this like destiny and chosen chosen family always fucking gets me. But this is the impetus of the story of a drummer rocketed to instant fame for Tom Hanks. And 
as Rachel mentioned, the Beatles were a giant inspiration for the Wonders, not just in musical styling, but in trajectory. So let's do a rapid fire Beatles comparison. Huh, nice. Both bands lost their drummer before making it big. Pete Best for Ringo and then Chad for Guy. And then the story that stuck in Hanks's craw about Ringo for, uh, what's his name? Jimmy Nickel. Both bands sped up a ballad for their first number one hit, Please Please Me for the Beatles, That Thing You Do for the Wonders. Both bands took the lead singer or slash creative forces partner with them on their rise, although Yoko Ono comes in a much later in the Beatles story. But John Lennon was married before Yoko to a woman named Cynthia. When the Wonders are running to the car in Wisconsin to catch a plane to the coast when they get pulled off of their state fair tour to go be in a Hollywood movie and mm. play on TV. Liv Tyler's character Faye gets mistaken for a fan and stopped by the police from following the band. A similar incident happened when the Beatles were traveling to see the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi while running to board a train. John Lennon's first wife, Cynthia, was stopped because she was mistaken for a fan. But unlike the film's version, no one came back to get Cynthia. I really believe that. 100%. <laughs> and shouts to Guy Patterson for being a stand-up dude. There are a lot of early hints in the movie that he is the only one paying attention to Faye. To Faye. She fucking jumps off the screen, man. She's so good yeah. in this movie. I read something funny, probably also in the Ringer interview, where Tom was like, my wife was like, don't fall in love with Liv Tyler. Oh, no, I didn't read that. Yeah. Woof. And she probably meant it in like a semi-sarcastic way, like, I... don't fall in love with Liv Tyler. I mean, I understand. That would... That would be tough. <laughs> Liv Tyler. <laughs> There's a story off from the set of the of the movie that Tom Hanks fell in love with his wife again, where he was working like 16 hour days and was so zonked out that he didn't know where he was. And he sees this like super hot woman on set and thinks to himself, oh, man, she's pretty. I hope she likes me. And it's his wife, Rita Wilson, <laughs> which is very cute. That is very cute. Is that part of the movie? Because I read that he really wanted Dollar All Up for her part. For, for her part, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So both the Wonders and the Beatles set Hearts of Flame on a primetime variety show in front of billions of screaming teenage girls. And in the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, which is like everyone, it's like that and Kennedy, right? Mm. But there's a shot of John Lennon accompanied with the caption, Sorry, girls, he's married. In the film, in in that thing you do, the caption is, careful girls, he's engaged. Which, okay, guys. Even Jimmy's mannerisms on stage are modeled after John Lennon's. I know that a lot of younger listeners will kind of roll their eyes at someone of the baby boomer generation writing a love letter to the Beatles, but put yourself in Tom Hanks's position for a second. The Beatles were a cultural phenomenon. And this film at least acknowledges the manufactured nature of fame and stardom, unlike some of the other Beatles love letters that we got in later mm. years. I, I think this is bringing to mind, Aviv, the experience I had um, at Taylor Swift's opening night of the Eras tour in Arizona. Show off. Well, <laughs> I got very lucky. I did not pay for my ticket. I was yeah. a, a very lucky plus one to a friend who was covering the show. And 
I can only say when anybody asked me what it was like to be there, I was like, it, I swear it must be like what Shea Stadium felt like when the Beatles played. When they there. Stopped, it felt, stopped playing. <laughs> it felt historic Yeah, just to be there in that moment. And I, I have never seen, I think the only amount of screaming that I have seen that even compares was when I saw One Direction in 20... 20- 13? I feel like every generation has their Beatles, NSYNC, New Kids on the Block, One Direction. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's got one, right? Yeah. I guess the only real difference is um, Swift, of course, is a solo artist yes. and not an all-male band, and she is much further along in her career. Yeah, very, very true. This wasn't a debut for, for T-Swift. So here's my question to you, Rachel. Yes. Could there be a different band that inspired the world-famous Wonders. Could there? Could there? Were there? <laughs> Maybe. For the for the 25th anniversary of the film, the Eerie Reader of Eerie PA did a piece on the film's lasting legacy and potential inspiration. So here's a little bit from the Eerie Reader, which is like very pro-Eerie, if you can believe it. Yeah. Details about how Eerie became the inspiration for that thing you do are a bit fuzzy. This is Tom Hanks's quote. I spent some formative years in Cleveland, Ohio. In October of 1982, Hanks drove to Cleveland after making a TV movie in Toronto. And, quote, I was bored and I got off the beaten path. I drove through Erie. I stopped at an Oktoberfest. I had half a stein of beer. I walked around the grounds. I threw some money in carny booths. And I just kind of dug Erie. And ever since then, it sort of stayed in my head. Much like the story of a drummer who has instantly become famous. But the film wasn't shot in Erie, nor did it premiere there, despite a plea from the then governor of Pennsylvania and future director of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge. Oh, I remember Tom Ridge. My family lived in Harrisburg under the governorship of Tom Ridge. Interesting guy. He showed up to the production with a... Uh, engraved Zippo lighter because he knew that Hanks collected Zippo lighters to try <laughs> to like coax him into into doing a premiere there. Wow, um, a premiere? You mean <laughs> a premiere? Hey, that that would have done it to. for me. I had to. Um, wait, Aviv, you are from Pennsylvania. I am. Have you have you ever spent much time or any time in Erie? I have spent I have spent some time in Erie. Yes, it's there's not a lot there. But some, this is more, this is back to the eerie reader. Mm. Some will recall that thing you do sounded surprisingly similar to the real life story of the fabulous epics. The Mm. epics started out as a band called the Sons of Italy in Erie before landing a three-year gig at the Peppermint Lounge in New York City. The band members, Polly Akulin Younger, Vinny Frazzini, Larry Bugsy Cope, Neil Myers, and Walter Slavinsky of Erie goofed around with Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and Ringo Starr at the Peppermint Lounge after the Beatles played the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th, 1964. And there's a picture of what? all of, of the fabulous epics with the Beatles. The more you know. The more you know. So the fabulous epics became the Younger Brothers. That's the name of the, they changed the name of the band. And they lasted for a few years in the music industry, as opposed to the Wonders, who only lasted a few months. But it is, I think, distinctly possible that this photo of the Beatles on the night they played Ed Sullivan with the fabulous epics made its way to Tom Hanks. 
And it is alleged that the Fabulous Epics played the Beatles a song that they eventually made their own. Hmm. So this is the one Fabulous Epic song that I could find on the internet. Want to take a listen? All right. It's Twist and Shout. (laughs) So what's your verdict? Do you think that Tom Hanks found out about the fabulous epics and wrote them into that thing you do? Easily. Easily. I think that if, I mean, based on what I've read, if if Tom Hanks has such a an eye slash ear for detail concerning things he likes, if those things infiltrate his mind, absolutely. I mean, if this movie and looking into it has shown me anything, it's that Tom Hanks enjoys a good Easter egg. It's true. But Tom himself has not ever spoken about the Fabulous Epic, so the answer for now has to be, I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> but as Tom's character, Mr. White, says in the movie, this story is actually a dime a dozen. It's a story of a one-hit wonder. So this is from that Ringer oral history. This is Tom Hanks's quote. I was always fascinated by the rock group Jan and Dean when I was growing up in high school, the concept of a band that stays together long enough to make it through their first tour and breaks up. And I thought it was just so real. So, I mean, it seems like this idea was germinating in his head since he was maybe seven years old, but the space to write the movie came in an unlikely form as well. Tom Hanks's previous mega super smash best picture winning film Forrest Gump had him traveling the world and answering questions from reporters, dealing with intense fans, and the nonstop interviews put Hanks in the mental state and gave him the creative drive to write his first feature film. He told Deadline, I had talked about myself for a year straight, so I started writing to maintain some sort of creative sanity. So here's a question for you. Yes. At many points, you have told me how you don't really enjoy music biopics, band biopics. No. Technically, this is not a biopic. Correct. But the reason that you said you didn't like a band biopic was because of the way film portrays a different kind of industry, the music industry. And that being said, what is your take on the way that thing you do portrays the music industry in the 60s. Oh, that's, I mean, listen, I don't understand the music industry in the 60s, but I think that there are a handful of things. By the way, there's a there's a clear divide on whether you pronounce it biopic or biopic, and I am a biopic and Rachel's a biopic. I guess I'm a biopic. <laughs> so someone's going to get mad. It's fine. Whatever. Like um, GIF versus GIF. Oh, it's definitely GIF. Um, it's definitely GIF. We agree on that. Yes. Hell yeah. Yes. So I think to me, the thing about music biopics that really butter my toast, or is that a bad thing? <laughs> really grate my cheese is the idea of inspiration. And mm-hmm. if you look at movies like Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury just like gets this far away look in his eye and starts playing the opening 
piano part of Bohemian Rhapsody when like, of course, that's not the first thing that was written. Are you kidding me? And so what this movie gets right about the creative process is like that song sucks the way Jimmy wants it. Mm -hmm. And it's a collaborative effort. And one creative force has a specific idea about it. What I what doesn't super all the way ring true for me is that guy would just have a feeling and start playing it fast at a show when in like, you know, don't be a dick, like tell everybody that you're going to do this. Um, but yeah, I think the collaborative process and the kind of the, the battle that creative endeavors require, I think is, is really on display pretty well in this film. Well, I guess I was always a believer that Guy Patterson planned to play the song faster from the jump, but knew that it that Jimmy go- would say no. That yeah, that he knew Jimmy would say no on some level. I don't. I don't think he did it maliciously. I don't think it was like super premeditated. Yeah. But I think after playing it a few times, the way Jimmy wanted in the time between practice and the talent show, he was like, "I'm just gonna let something take over." Yeah. And come what may. <laughs> and it and it doesn't bump me so much that like I am like this is this movie is nonsense but you know I think it's also they do a relatively good job of walking us through how the recording process is they do a really fun job when the wonders are on weekend at party pier and the playback disappears like really I think that they do a generally a pretty good job with that stuff but in the scripting phase so Tom Hanks is doing press for Forrest Gump, and then he's doing awards press for Philadelphia, and then he's doing awards press again for Forrest Gump, and so he he bangs out a script in about 30 days is how the legend goes, but that is probably just a draft, and then he sends it to his collaborator and friend Nora Ephron, who wrote Sleepless in Seattle, and Nora Ephron gave Hank's notes on the script, which is like saying my uncle LeBron gave me some tips <laughs> on my free throw. It's like she's the one of the greatest writers of especially of romantic comedies that the world has ever known. Yeah. So the script is done. It's good. We're rocking and rolling. This is from Looper. Much like the cast they played, the stars of that thing you do were relatively unknown when they were cast. So it wasn't difficult to play the overwhelming mix of excitement and anxiety that comes with sudden fame. But it was the first film role for the lead, Tom Everett Scott, and he told Us Weekly, quote, it was paralleling my experience with the filming, being an actor and Guy's experience with being a musician and just going right to the top. It it was a whirlwind. But casting these roles were tough. Diana Choi, who's a production associate for the film, told The Ringer, Tom saw everyone for these parts. Billy Crudup, Ed Norton... Edward Norton had just done Primal Fear with Richard Gere and he was getting all this attention and then he suddenly like dropped out of the film. <laughs> Matt Damon read. I think Ben Affleck may have read too. I think Luke Wilson read. This, by yeah. the way, would have been yeah. before Goodwill Hunting and Bottle Rocket made any of these people stars. I could see Luke Wilson in, in a role in oh, this film. Oh, yeah. He oh, had yeah. that clean cut kind of good guy thing going. Meanwhile, Luke Wilson was like, making bottle rocket over on the sony lot like quietly but jonathan shake who had only had a few bit parts at the time earned the role by singing the i quit song in the audition yeah um wasn't that ad lib so yeah the story goes that the 
scene is written as he says, I quit, Mr. White, and walks out. And Shake says, you know, he's a singer. He'd sing it. And then he ad-libbed it in the audition and Mm -hmm. it immediately made its way into the movie. Not immediately, but it was like, well, this is it. Yeah. This is of of all of the things that I quote in this movie. This is the number one thing. I sing the I quit song all the time. (laughs) Hank's cast future Oscar winner Charlize Theron is Guy's girlfriend, Tina. In this was her first on-screen credited role. And in Theron's copy of the script, Tom Hanks wrote, no matter what, I will always claim to have discovered you. (laughs) So he knows, right? Yeah. Tina, who falls in love with her dentist. Tina, who falls in love with her dentist. Yes. And Liv Tyler, who was the best known member of the cast other than Tom Hanks, is the daughter of Aerosmith's frontman, Steven Tyler. She was in Aerosmith's video for Crazy. She was also in Bernardo Bertolucci's movie Stealing Beauty, which is like, Bernardo Bertolucci's a, an interesting guy who Rita Wilson would have told him, hey, don't fall in love with Liv Tyler. <laughs> but Hanks had originally wanted Tyler's Aerosmith video co-star Alicia Silverstone, who dropped out due to scheduling conflicts. Yeah. And this just occurred to me that Tyler and Ethan Embry had just appeared together in Empire Records. Had just filmed Empire Records, but mm-hmm. ha- Empire Records not hadn't out come out yet. Mm-hmm. So they had been friends for a couple of years through the process of this, and they were excited to hang out again. Steve Zahn, meanwhile, was memorably endearing in Reality Bites, which caused his Reality Bites co-star, Ethan Hawke, to recommend him for a table read that they were having to just like test out the script. And Zahn, like in the movie, stole every scene at the table read and immediately got cast. I'm signing. You're signing. We're all signing. We're all signing. We're all signing. There's a bunch of fun Zahn stuff. He's my favorite. Lenny's the best. I loved him for pushing the band forward because when everyone else is like hemming and hawing, especially Jimmy, it's always Lenny who's like, I just want to do it. Like you could argue he's not thinking about it enough, but I I feel that way. Inside (laughs) you, there are two wolves, Jimmy and Lenny. (laughs) And also this is the ringer. Ethan Embry, who plays TB player, the bass player says, I had just finished Empire Records and this audition came up. I was playing bass. I was kind of punk rock in the 90s. Lots of nail polish. I wore women's clothes at the time. I think I put on male clothes for the audition, but I brought my bass completely tagged up with crap. One thing I remember around the input jack, I had cut out a pornographic image and lacquered it. So when you plugged it in, Hanks says he was an odd dude, man. <laughs> he said quote we'll have to clean him up that's the odd duck in the band at the time ethan was very much involved in the counterculture and he was only 16 he was not this is what hank said when he was cast he was an ephemeral creature who wasn't sure what he was and speaking of ducks oh but wait wait let me stop you for a second do you know what ethan named his character Tobias. Yes. He yes. says he, he just seems like a Tobias. Tobias. TB. Player. And do you know what the reason was for not giving his character a name? Because no one gives a shit about the bass player. Exactly. Hell but yeah. we do. I would tell this to my bass player of my band, but I don't give a shit about him. <laughs> so speaking of ducks, Embry says, on location, there was a feed store with a cage full of little ducks. 
So I got a duck. I didn't know where to put this in the episode. So it's here. I argue it should be here. It's a good, it's a good little anecdote. His name was Salvador Ducky. I was Mother Duck. I would feed him from my mouth. And then we went to Pomona. And I told my sister to take care of the duck. And she made a bath for Salvador. But he didn't have a way out of the bath. So Salvador didn't survive the bath. And I learned of Salvador's demise when we were doing the red suit day. I felt horrible. Awful. And I pooped (laughs) myself in the suit. Okay. What a character. So, right. But this, okay. But the way he says this, it it sounds like of grief, right? Like I was so out of grief. Out of grief, right? I felt so. No. Colleen Atwood, four time Academy Award winner, (laughs) says, I didn't have doubles for any of that stuff. You don't even think about it. You're just like, oh my God. You go rinse them out, you get a blow dryer out, and you hand them back to him. And Hank said, all I could think was, you are 16, aren't you? (laughs) So I was like, what the fuck are you talking about, Ethan Embry? He goes on to say, Hank seemed really gracious about it. He let me shower in his trailer because he was the only one that had a shower. They (laughs) laid down cardboard from the door to the shower. Later that night, a doctor came in and said I had gotten dysentery from mouth to mouth feeding my duck. I'll be the first to admit that I fucked up. I can laugh about it now, but yeah, I, I think, pooped the red pants. I think, in fact, he ducked up. He did. He did duck up. <laughs> and Atwood, I, I can't believe this. Atwood's like he's not the first actor that pooped their pants in, in the costume. <laughs> did you have you ever seen that um, early Donald Glover bit? Yeah, <laughs> you know in, in the Home about? Depot. No, um, or he's like a high school kid who likes to skateboard and then he poops his pants and everyone hears and he spends the rest of the bit trying to convince everyone like, let's just start over. Let's rewind, rewind. Hi, my, hey, my name is, I forget his name. Like, I, I like to skateboard. I would never do anything (laughs) as stupid as poop my pants. And meanwhile, he's just like, he sits and you hear the splat. Oh no. (laughs) Great sound editing in that bit. (laughs) But at the center of it all is Guy Patterson. So Tom Everett Scott bears a passing resemblance to a young Tom Hanks, the film's director and writer. And because of that, there was a little reluctance for Hanks to cast him. However, Rita Wilson, Hanks's wife and actor producer in her own right, convinced Hanks to cast Tom Everett Scott because she thought he was cute. Quote, Tom was showing me tapes and he said no one was quite right. And he goes, well, there's this one guy that came in. He's perfect for the part. But I think people are going to think he looks too much like me. And I, Rita, said, let me see. And Tom played me the audition tape. And I was like, okay, this guy is the guy. But why wouldn't you cast this guy? Even if someone said, oh, he looks like Tom. So what? He's perfect for the role. I politely disagree that I think he resembles Tom Hanks, but he is in no way a mirror image. Do you know what sells me on his proximity to Tom Hanks? He looks like the kid from Big, grown up. Oh, okay. I and haven't, like, like, I have haven't seen, seen Big in a hot minute. David Moscow, grown yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. It looks just like Tom Everett's. Yeah. So later on, Rita Wilson plays the lounge waitress flirting with Guy when he meets his idol jazz drummer, Del Paxton. So a little more on Del Paxton and 
the idea of Del Paxton. I think you probably know what I'm going to say. But when I was rewatching that thing you do most recently, and Del Paxton's character, he's giving Guy Patterson all this really great advice, blah, 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 blah. He's someone that Del is his biggest fan. You are my biggest fan. You are my biggest fan. Anyway. Buy me a drink. This is a little bit of a troubling character because it definitely falls into the magical negro trope yeah this plus the bellhop character played by oba babatunde lamar who they seem to exist only to like push the white main characters into the direction that they should be going yeah so this is my only like 25 years later this is my only real criticism of the movie yeah and i think it is made a little bit worse because the last shot of the movie is babatunde like looking into the camera being like jiminy cricketing and like being like a wink which we can talk a little bit about why that that wasn't originally the way it was supposed to be intended but we'll talk about how that happened later yeah okay but now that the cast is in place they had to learn how to be a band and this is a familiar tale among Many movies about bands, The Wonders, Stillwater, even Steel Dragon, all went to Rockstar Camp in order to passively learn how to play their instruments. But for Hanks, it wasn't about verisimilitude. The boys were playing to playback, and Hanks told the ringer, don't worry about the fidelity of your playing, because if it doesn't match, it's not going to be in the movie. I, Hanks, wanted them to experience nothing but the joy of performing on stage, which I think is another thing that the movie captures so well. Chris Ellis, who plays Phil Horace, The Wonder's first manager, told The Ringer, when we first started to work on the movie, Tom and I had a little confab about how Phil would develop throughout the movie, and I said, where do I screw over the band? Mm -hmm. And he held up his hands with two stop signs and said, no bad guys in my movie. I know what happens to garage bands, and they got fucked across the board. That's just how the industry was. And he held up the stop signs again, and he said, no bad guys in my movie. But there is an extended director's cut of the film where the characters are, let's say, a little bit more complicated. Mm. I did. I have not seen the extended director's cut, but I have. I haven't heard about certain scenes that, that complicate the characters a little bit more, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the production itself wasn't all sunshine and rainbows either. This is Ethan Embry. So this, this is all of the wonders <laughs> to the ringer. We were in 1964 in Erie, but not in Erie, in Orange, California. But there were 10,000 people at the end of the street that know Tom Hanks is there. They're trying to scream and get his attention every time he walks out. And Zahn says, you hear this chanting, Tom, Tom, Tom. And Jonathan Shake says, I remember the crowds like the Beatles were in town, and they would put these screens around so Tom could work. But, <laughs> now Embry, when we were doing the cafe scene, it got so loud that Tom said, I have to go out. We're going to take a 15-minute break. And he walks out the door, walks into the middle of the street, and gives a Forrest Gump wave. <laughs> and it was so funny, and they all cheered, and then he came back in and they were quiet. You gotta just you know, feed the monster sometimes. Yeah, just give him a little... Yeah. Yeah, good good on Hanks. He knows how this works. Every interview I've ever heard with Hanks and every kind of making of that I've ever explored about Hanks, he very much knows who he is. Right? I want to mention something that I read 
probably in the same ringer interview. Shout out to the ringer. You're this is, really, this you're is helping us through the Bible. You're, you're the guiding hand through yeah. this episode. There is a moment where Hank says to all of the wonders, um, all I expect of you is that you show up on time and you know your lines. Oh yeah. And they all four at some point were late. We're late and overslept. And tisk, tisk. Yeah. someone, not Tom, but I think Gary says to them, Tom is very disappointed. And, and they, that, they were like, I, I can Dad? only imagine what I shot through the heart. That must have been the biggest gut punch to know that America's sweetheart, Tom Hanks, is disappointed in you. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. You've hurt Forrest Gump's feelings. <laughs> so it's fascinating to me how Tom Hanks, the character that he gives to America, is the one of the nicest people you will ever meet. And then... That guy has to be your boss. How's yeah. that gonna how's that gonna play out? And um I look forward to asking Tom Everett Scott about that a little bit. I agree. And a lot of people don't remember at this point, because Tom Hanks has proven to be such a versatile actor, that he got his start in comedy, very broad comedy. And a lot of the goofy moments, especially the stuff that Lenny, Steve Zahn's character does, came from Hanks and Zahn kind of finding it in the moment, including him kissing the cardboard cutout in the best scene of the movie, Zahn playing cards and like flashing his deck to those old men, him annoying Hanks on the airplane. Ethan Embry says, everything that people love about that movie, that's Tom's mind. When the music director wanted to know how a certain song would sound, Tom would call him up and hum them. And this is Hanks's quote. I just had an idea for this Lawrence Welk song. It goes something like, You're the winter, the fall, and the spring. Those syrupy vocals. And Gary mm-hmm. said, Call up Mike Piccarillo and leave it on his answering machine. <laughs> so when we talk about Hanks's encyclopedic knowledge of 60s music, it's not limited to the stuff he experienced as a kid. Holmes Osborne, who played Guy Patterson's father, says, I told Tom, you know, I used to be in a band in high school called The Trends, and Tom never paid much attention to it, but if you look at the marquee where the Wonders are playing, you will see the name The Trends. He just worked stuff about his friends and about the people he cared about into his movies, which is so sweet. And he said, Tom has a mind like a steel trap, which is which, which I love, and is bringing to mind friend of the pod, Hillary Hughes, because the last time I saw her, I hadn't seen her in a while. And she was like, oh, yeah, you're because you're from New Jersey, right? Oh, yeah, because your husband's from North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a sister, right? And I was like, Hillary, have I ever told you this? <laughs> How do you? You have a great memory. You're on notice, Hillary. Dang. And, and Hillary was like, I just have a photographic memory for this stuff. <laughs> and I think that there are, especially with people who are so talented like hanks and and like hillary the way that they show their affection or love or something is like by remembering stuff about you and his steel trap mind is also very helpful as an actor remembering lines and motivations and everything like that but like the the fact that he is able to weaponize his steel trap mind to make a richer experience for everybody everybody in front of the camera behind the camera and the audience is like that's his true gift as a performer Mm. speaking of little details this one is my favorite which is that the wonders as they get more successful their instruments get nicer and more expensive they start out playing like 
plastic instruments essentially yeah. like dan electros yeah. and and by the end of it they're playing really nice fender yeah. gibson gear you know who else noticed that your fucking husband my husband taylor a friend of the pod and music Musician. composer yeah. music composer of the pod and he noticed the same thing and he was pointing that out to me because whenever we watch a movie with music instruments i always ask him like are these guitars period like accurate, period appropriate yeah. yeah or is this realistic because he would know and that's something we talked about while rewatching. Like, yeah, his, yeah. Th- these guitars, they're all period appropriate, but they're getting nicer and nicer. And Taylor and I bonded over this because I also collect old guitars and this is just something that delights me. So there is an extended edition, as I mentioned, of the film. And these are some of the additional details that they reveal. There is a longer section of Guy's relationship with Tina in Erie PA, including like more about her falling in love with her dentist, um, extended scenes of the band rehearsing and Jimmy coaxing Guy's uncle played by Chris Isaac to record the song, all my only dreams, which is the B side to that thing you do a longer segment of TV players, romantic affair with one of the Chantralines, which is the <laughs> only other black character in the movie. Um, but these are the big ones. Before the wonders appear on national television, Guy arrives back at the hotel in a drunken state after meeting Del Paxton, and he finds an excited Mr. White with the good news about playing on TV the next day. And waiting for Mr. White outside is his boyfriend, Lloyd, played by, in the weirdest casting ever, (laughs) former defensive linebacker Howie Long. See, I didn't know who that was. <laughs> he's, he's, he's like a football commentator. He is 6'5", 265 pounds. Get it, Mr. White. Get it, Mr. White. And so there is just but one knowing look from Howie Long. I don't think he even has a line in the movie that tells you about the secret life that Mr. White has, which is another homage to Brian Epstein, who the Beatles have said was mm-hmm. like... Mm-hmm. kind of halfway out of the closet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this would have been been a choice for the 90s especially this would have been a choice for the 60s and for the 90s it's a, it's really yeah. interesting of all of the things that got cut out i think i missed this one of everything yeah like you wish it had been a part of the film especially because as a kid you think jimmy's the bad guy and then yeah. you think yeah. White is the bad guy, and this kind of humanizes him a little bit more. True. It's interesting. Interestingly, like even as a kid, I never anticipated Mr. White being the bad guy. Right. He, even though he was stern, he had a stern quality. I just saw him as someone who like knows his business, knows what needs to happen. This is, is used incredible. to wrangling creative personalities. He's just a straightforward kind of guy. This might be the Jimmy in me, but we have entirely different readings of that. Because when you're saying like Jimmy's kind of dragging his feet on signing a contract. Yeah. I think Jimmy's right. (laughs) Oh, no. Jimmy doesn't want to give up his creative IP or whatever because he's afraid that Playtone will bastardize it. And they do. You will record that that. thing you do in Spanish. (laughs) I get that. But yeah, this this must be where our paths diverge i think so (laughs) because at the end of the film and i've talked about this before with taylor 
interestingly, because like when he was putting out his first solo album. Oh, Taylor's on my side for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I was like advising him on publicists and do this, not that, because I have like kind of an insider window to yeah. the industry and like what does well and your art can't exist in a vacuum and when you're as early in the wonders or any like really young band's career you have almost no leverage oh. uh and you kind of have to like play the game a little bit at least in the traditional sense to get that leverage back like there's a reason that I'm going to use Taylor Swift again as a reference. There's a reason that Taylor Swift can do whatever she wants to do now because she has now yeah. because she has put two decades of work and she now is able to do things that no one else has ever done. And like, there is no precedent for it because she played the game for a very, very long time. So there's a bit of game playing in the very beginning. And she was uh, pigeonholed for a, a very long mm -hmm. time as just this country teeny bop artist yes i see this all the time as a journalist like how the power imbalance becomes or rather how the power balance itself plays so very early in a band's career they're all about press they want press press is good journalists good on the other side of the spectrum once that artist is super wildly famous if they are super wildly famous and and everybody wants them everyone wants to talk to them if you're on like the Rihanna or the Beyonce side of fame, you never need to talk to another journalist again. Right. You call all your own shots. And and honestly, the journalists are more just annoyances. They'll print press releases and thank you for him. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I'm as someone who watches this movie with my heart, like invested in the <laughs> wonders. Success, you want them right. I'm like, Listen, you have to record that thing you do in Spanish if you ever want to record. If like <laughs> you go back to the basement or the or the garage and do anything you want to do, but while you're in the game, <laughs> maybe he's just ahead of his time. He needs to be in like an indie label system, Jimmy. Potentially, and doesn't he like start a label? Isn't that like his the thing in the, in the postcards at the end of the movie? But I I'm he not becomes a, a big name producer. Yeah, I'm not saying that Jimmy is necessarily like morally right or right for to refuse recording that thing you do in spanish something happy something peppy um but i also know this is like the perfect greek tragedy right like you know that a character will snatch defeat from the hands of victory because they don't see themselves the way that mr white sees them yes also arguably the wonders they were never all together on the same page. They were all kind of on their own paths, like with TB player going off to the Marines. He, he had, <laughs> he, he was not a long-term musician, um, even before the band got into the Playtone galaxy. And Steve's on, he's just happy to be there. Guy Patterson, he arguably, he would have probably kept going as a means to an end because he's such a jazz freak that he yeah. wants to use, not use, but have the wonders be like a vehicle to get into, you know, out of Erie and into Los Angeles, which he does. And so he kind of wins, but I, I think it's, it's arguable that, that like none of the members of this band like 
they're all kind of going through the motions because it's, oh, like, bright lights, big city. This mm-hmm. is so different from anything we know. But in a long-term sense, none of them are on the same page with each other. No, and, and Guy is the point of view of the movie, which is like, this is fun for now. Don't take it too seriously. The moment that you think that this is forever is the moment that it goes away. Yeah. And speaking of the ending of the movie, this is kind of the last significant difference, which is very significant, which is uh, after the band's unofficial split at the end of the movie, Guy meets up with Del Paxton. He plays, you know, play I Am Spartacus. And Del and a number of other jazz members are also in the studio working on some new music. Guy contacts a local DJ. This is in a deleted scene. Guy contacts a local jazz DJ who interviewed the Wonders, played by Clint Howard. And the DJ tells Guy that he can get him a job at the radio station if he will interview Del Paxson and his friends. So this is in contrast to Guy saying that he doesn't know what he's going to do at the end of the movie. But Oba Babatunde, who played Lamar, sheds a little bit of light on what exactly the ending of the movie was supposed to be he told the ringer initially there were two endings there's the postcards that tell us what happened jimmy is a music producer lenny got divorced etc etc but we also shot one where lamar capsulized everybody's life and we shot it so it's like now you may remember let me tell you what they're doing now when they screen that version 50% 50% of the audience liked it, 50% of the audience liked the other one, and they ended up going with the postcards. But they left his look to camera, which was supposed to be the beginning of that sequence. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I think it's out of place is because it is out of place, right? It doesn't actually belong there. It belongs in the sequence where he he just takes us through what happened to the wonders. And honestly, I think the movie's a little bit better for not doing that because of the tropes that we had discussed a little earlier in the show. Right. Hank says, when I saw American Graffiti and I saw those post credits hits of like this person grew up and did this, it blew me away. So I ripped it off. (laughs) And I mentioned a little earlier, the story of the wonders is continued in the liner notes of the soundtrack. So these are some of the things that are canonically revealed in the film's soundtrack liner notes. Following the group's appearance on the Hollywood Television Showcase, that thing you do rose to number two on Billboard. Jimmy's career with the Herdsman was also detailed a little further, indicating that they recorded I Need You, parentheses that thing you do, which is the song that is heard over the movie's end credits, and a mm. song called She Knows It, which is also at the end of the credits. And the liner notes are attributed to A.M. White, as in Mr. White, who supposedly later became president of the Playtone label. And weirdly, there is a battle between what A.M. White stands for. I heard it was Amos. It is. So I am on the side of Amos, but in another weird kind of strange racial trope, the not Rachel trope, racial trope. It better not be a racial trope. (laughs) the, uh, The other answer is Andy. Right. So people have misheard it as Andy, uh, who is also the name of like someone who filled in on base for the Beatles once, I think, uh, Andy White. But Amos is Tom Hanks's father's first name. And I think canonically, we're, we're supposed to know that it is Amos White. Right. Well, uh, let's talk a bit about the actual IRL 
chart performance of both the soundtrack album and that thing you do the song. So the soundtrack album, which was released under Tom Hanks's Playtone label in conjunction with Epic Records, uh, and we'll talk about Plato and the label after this. So the soundtrack album peaked at 21 on the Billboard 200. And the CD artwork is a replica of the fictional Plato label used in the movie. We were kind of going through it earlier. The liner notes are done in like a mockumentary style as if the wonders had been a real group. Fuck um, that rolls. And the song itself peaked at number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe for Best Original Song in 1997. Interestingly, Playtone, because of this movie, Playtone Records, it is now a real label. And it is what Hanks uses to release all the soundtracks of his films. Including? Including, actually, I, I don't think that Bring It On is his film, but his label did put out its soundtrack but i believe he did produce my big Fret greek wedding rita did yeah yeah playtone also put out soundtracks for tv shows like big love and the sopranos and playtone produced one of my all-timers mama mia <laughs> amazing i never saw that someday i'll tell you how i'm not a big theater person <laughs> oh i'm not a big theater person either yeah. but i love abba Amazing. Well, Ava, yeah, I guess it's a bit different. Yeah, um, I, you know, I think it's one of those things that if I did watch it, if I got if I got over myself enough to watch it, then I would. I know that I would love it. I just haven't gotten over myself yet. Oh, it's a horrible movie. <laughs> it is. It doesn't make any sense. In a weird bit of coincidence, spotting that thing you do lost at the 1997 Academy Awards to "You Must Love Me," which is the Andrew Lloyd Webber Tim Rice original song for the movie version of Evita. Mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. stars Madonna. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Jonathan and Shake and Madonna went on a date. Yeah, I read that. He, he was like, like he cash- said she was like his real Diane Dane. Yeah, he said that she was his real Diane Dane. And like, r- he just randomly drops that in the interview. And like, there's no follow up. <laughs> yeah. There are a few interviews where people like in the making of that thing you do just comment on what a good looking guy of Jonathan Shake is. He's a really good looking guy. His jaw's great. I remember him. He had a show, I think, with Christina Applegate. There was like a sitcom that he did. Yeah, I haven't seen it. It was a short-lived sitcom, but I remember seeing Jimmy. Nothing against Jonathan, but something about the way his hair is kind of folded over bothers me somewhat. I'm very big on hair. I think that that is by design. I think that they make him like a little bit of a sniveling twerp. (laughs) <laughs> at times yeah yeah but so uh in 2017 right around like a year after the movie's 20th anniversary the actors three quarters of the actors who played the wonders so tom everett scott and jonathan shake and ethan Embry, they all did a surprise performance as the wonders at the roxy in la and this was for a comedy show, what else? And it's a show where the comedians would tell funny stories about a meaningful song and then like perform it with the live band. And Steven Zahn could not be there, but in his place was Jeremiah Watkins, who wore a cutout mask of Zahn's face. There are like very few places where I'd be like, I wish I had seen, you know, David Bowie. I wish I could have been there. That this sounds so amazing. 
That was the first year that I lived in LA. Oh, really? So I probably just missed it because I was too busy trying to move in. Yeah. <laughs> well, Aviv, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut us off here. No. Yes, because as you may have guessed, there's just way too much great that thing you do conversation and content and way too little time. If you think one episode is enough to contain all of our love for that thing you do, think again. We have a very special episode coming up next week, That Thing You Do Part 2 Electric Boogaloo, where we chat with the man, the myth, the legend, Tom Everett Scott, a.k.a. Guy Patterson, a.k.a. Shades, a.k.a. AKA Skitch, a.k.a. AKA, AKA, yeah, sure. Spartacus. Spartacus, who will regale us with behind-the-scenes stories and tell us about what Tom Hanks was like as a boss, where Guy Patterson's drum set is now, and so much more. We'll see you next week. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.